Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Father Chris Alar, one of the Marian priests here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. And we want to welcome you to join us in probably the most extensive talk we have ever done in these 125, whatever they are now, number of explaining the faith. This is a gigantic topic that theologians dedicate their entire lives to studying. I had multiple courses in seminary, reading all the documents, and we're going to try to teach you in this one section. Our topic, Vatican II. And that's a big one. Is it good? Is it bad? Do we have to accept it? Can we accept it? Do we have to reject it? Can we reject it? We'll talk about all that. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to enlighten us, to give us the gift of wisdom, to be able to discern what is of you, what is of the evil one, and what you wish us to do to follow your will. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I figure this is the evil one. My ear just completely plugged and went deaf. So I'm not really clearly hearing myself speak. So I, if I'm speaking too loud or not enough, I apologize. But today is a, an important topic, Vatican II. Um, nobody seems to agree. Everybody has their own opinions. Okay, so... I want to start with the fact that nobody denies there's abuses. All right, the abuses that came after Vatican II. Let's look at our slide. Clown masses, irreverence, rock music, as we watched last week, loss of the sense of the sacred. But was this from the documents of Vatican II? Did the Vatican II documents say to do this? To drop Latin, to turn the altar around, to take communion in the hand? We're going to talk about all this. So was it from the documents that caused all these abuses? Again, nobody's denying abuses. We know they're here. We've got to fix them. But did they come from the documents? Did they come from being implemented, Vatican II being wrongly implemented? Or did they come from a culture that in the 60s was becoming lost, or a combination of all three. We must distinguish between the documents of Vatican II and the abuses that came after Vatican II. They may or may not be related. They could be indirectly related, maybe directly related. That's what we're going to talk about. All right, something that comes after something else doesn't always mean it's the cause of that thing, okay? I came after my sister, but that didn't make me the cause, or my sister was the cause of me, anything but. My parents are probably like, whoa, we don't want to have another one. So just because something comes after something doesn't make it's a result cause of that thing, okay? Post-Vatican II coincided with upheaval in the mid to late 60s and in the, in the 70s. Religion was disappearing. Yes, there was ill intent of some at Vatican II. We talked about last week, Bugnini and others. It's, it's pretty much known. But there were other good ones there too. Ratzinger, Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, Benedict XVI. 
So many will say that the liturgical documents don't have errors. Okay, many will say this. In fact, do you know Lefebvre, Archbishop Lefebvre, who led the SSPX in 1970 to split from the church? Do you know he signed all of the Vatican II documents? Did you know that 95% of the bishops signed all of the documents? You know, we know this. The liturgical documents then must not have had errors, but they were used by some in the church to bring about error, to cease on some of the vagueness that was in the documents that they could implement bad stuff in the following years. So let's look at our next slide. All right, let's talk about Vatican II. On October the 11th, 1962, so over 60 years ago, John the 23rd called Vatican II, and it went through 1965, so four sessions, 62, 63, 64, and 65. They were held in the fall. Now, it was the 21st general or ecumenical council that we call this. So we've had in the 2000 year history, we've had 21 of these, so only one about every 100 years. One about every 100 years. So these are major deals. What was the first one? Anybody remember? Nicaea, exactly. So let's, for the Mark, I messed up Brother Mark, but the first slide I wanted him to show was the Vatican II. Now the next slide, let's look at this. This was the Council of Nicaea, slide four. Slide four, the Council of Nicaea, held in 325, the first. Now, the formal acts of an ecumenical council ratified by a pope are guaranteed the Holy Spirit. So this is where it gets really confusing. Was it Vatican II itself that was messed up? Uh, church teaching is that's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Or was it what came afterwards as a result of misinterpretation, misimplementation, and the culture that got all screwed up, which is not protected by the Holy Spirit? Ooh, that seems to make some sense. All right, we can't reject the authority of a council approved by a pope, which it was by Paul VI, especially who was a saint. And so I've told you that before, I, I'm not a radical traditionalist, and I'm certainly not a modernist. I'm a traditionalist, I'm a trad, but I called myself, like Scott Hahn, a glad trad, not a mad trad, not a rad trad but a glad trad. It's kind of <clears throat> leaning more to the right, but open to trying to figure out where was the Holy Spirit in Vatican II rather than just rejecting it all. Not all radical traditionalists reject all of Vatican II, but many do. Okay, now, more than 2,500 bishops from around the world came and participated. Do you know there's, no, there's double the bishops now today? I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. All right, this included heads of religious orders, not just bishops, but theologians, biblical scholars, but they didn't vote. Only the bishops voted. So people who say, oh, there was Protestants there. It's invalid. They didn't vote. Now, the question how much influence they had, that's a different story. We don't know. Each of the three popes that came after the council, who were they? John Paul, well, really, uh, John Paul I, 
even though he was only in it for a short period of time, but mainly John Paul II and Benedict XVI, they pledged that their first act would be to, an intention to implement the council. So to me, if Paul, John Paul is behind it and Benedict was behind it, I'm not convinced it's, 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 it's of Satan. Now, the question on the slide that we had on our cover slide was, is Vatican II of God or of Satan? I think it was of God, but messed with by Satan. Okay? And so at the time of the church's most recent council, which is for us Vatican II, for them, it was Vatican I. Vatican I was held in 1869 and 70, but they had to interrupt it because of the war between Germany and France. So the purpose of calling Vatican II was to preserve and promote church teaching, number one, to evangelize. Two, so the number one goal was to define and promote church teaching, evangelize, one. The second reason was to unite with other Christians. And people get really mad by that. Ecumenical is a dirty word. It can be if you sacrifice the truth. To be ecumenical, I want to be ecumenical. I want to bring people into the true church. I don't sacrifice the truth. I don't say, oh, you're Muslim. Okay, I tell you what, on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I'll worship Buddha. And on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you worship God. No, that's not ecumenical. So the second goal was to unite with other Christians, because what did Jesus say in the Gospel of John? I pray that they may all be one. So God is tasking us to do this. So the second goal, ecumenism. First is evangelize, two is, to ecumen is ecumenism. And then the third reason, let's look at our slide, our next slide. The third reason, to adapt and update the church was reformed. Now, now, reform can be a dirty word, but it doesn't have to be. The church wanted to update her methods, practices, and disciplines. Why? Why did the church need to change? Why did they think they needed to change? Because of the quickest changing world in the history of mankind. Do you realize from the 1940s to the 1960s what happened? We went to the jet airplane. We went to mass communication. We went from medical advancements that were unprecedented in the world. Televisions became in every home. All of that was going to affect the faith of people. So the church said, wait a minute. Change just for the sake of change is not good but change so we don't lose souls that are getting caught up in this modern world of materialism. Now money started coming like never before. Wall Street exploded. Corporate America exploded. Promiscuity exploded. Birth control, pornography exploded. If the church didn't do something, we'd all be pointing our fingers at it. Why didn't you do something in the 1960s when all this garbage started happening? So the church did do something, but now we're pointing at the church saying, why'd you change? I'm not saying all the change was good. A lot of problems. 
All right, so they tried to keep up with the modern times. Now, that's not always bad. So John the 23rd said he imagined a new Pentecost, a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit to prepare the church to enter the third millennium. Fabulous. All right, this was to evangelize. So the goal was to reset the church's relationship with the modern world. That doesn't mean it's modernism. I know I'm going to get no less then two to 300 comments on this video. I get it. God bless you. Calling me a modernist. <laughs> Anything but that. But if the church doesn't try to reach souls in the modern world, souls will be lost. Why did they do this? Because the church had a reputation of being against science. The church had a reputation of being against democracy. The church had a reputation of being against individual rights, especially with the female um, revolution going on. So the church had this stigma that it, in this changing world, said, we got to explain, we got to, we, we, we got to step up here. Now, whether or not that exactly came out in a good way, eh. All right, so let's look at our next slide. John the 23rd died in 1963, just one year into the council. So Paul the Sixth took over and he produced 16 documents. Well, the council did. All right, so let's look at this slide. That's the Vatican II documents. That's what I read in seminary. Very few people have a chance to ever read any one of these documents, let all 16. And this is what I want to take you through today. So that you don't have the time to do it. And so I'm taking you back to seminary. This is, this is probably the most back to seminary we've ever taken you. Because this is the core of it. All right, so Vatican II, let's look at our next slide, brought to use the French word ressourcement. This means going back to the sources. So the council fathers looked at the church's entire tradition, back to the church fathers, back to sacred scripture, all trying to apply that to modern man. It's not modernism. It's saying modern man, whether we like it or not, is caught up in the modern world. And so we want to take the scripture, we want to take church fathers. So Vatican II, at least the intent, at least the writing, wasn't to destroy tradition. It was to help modern man. Now again, I know all you're preparing your letters calling me pro-Vatican II, and I'm stupid because I don't see the evils. They're coming. <laughs> We're going to be talking about them. All right, so now... It was on the basis of these documents of Vatican II, these 16 documents, that the church also revised the Code of Canon Law, all right, in 1983, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1992. So there was fruit. The cool thing about these documents, you don't have to go to seminary to learn about these documents right now, because I want to walk you through them. All right, now, this was a time of turmoil. Let's look at our next slide. Oh, boy. Vietnam. The Cold War. Prayer was taken out of schools in 1962. How ironic is that? The year of Vatican II, prayer was taken out of schools. Kennedy was shot in 63. The sexual revolution was just beginning. Woodstock, as you see on your screen, was sex abuse, drug abuse. The rejection of authority was probably the biggest thing going on right now. And what is the church all about? Obeying authority, not authoritarian, but the authority of God. 
And so some of these ideologies got into the church. Whether or not Vatican II happened or not, these evil things were coming. Were these cultural mistakes or was it the documents of Vatican II that caused the errors in implementing what the council had called for? We don't know. We don't know whether the widespread change in the church had been decreed by the council or was a result of what people thought the council said. All we know is these abuses came after the council. All right, nobody knew how an ecumenical council was to be implemented. Nobody. Pope Benedict XVI attributed much of the confusion following Vatican II to false interpretation. All right, Vatican II did not change any beliefs in the church, but rather how the beliefs were expressed. But that could still be a problem. Vatican II never changed church teaching, but it did change how the way we taught. It didn't change beliefs, but how we express those beliefs, again, can be problematic. It encouraged the reading of Scripture. That's good. To follow Christ, to be holy, a call to holiness, this is good. We are to live our faith, living our faith in the world. This is good. So what happened? All right, why has the council been the subject of so much false and different interpretations? All right. It is not completely the fault of the council that it's been interpreted so many different ways. There's a period after every council in church history that seems to be disunity and differing opinions and differing interpretations. Right after Trent, they talked about building seminaries. You know, it took 150 years. You think they all got along and agreed to that? We all seem to think that everything was magically delicious back then. Traditionally, it's, it's been hard. Sometimes it's taken 100 years to implement a council. You know that there was more divisiveness about Vatican II 20 years ago than there is today. Did you know that? But why is it becoming a bigger issue today? Because the culture is so messed up. But what is different? is that there is a break between the letter and the spirit of Vatican II. The letter and the spirit. The letter is what the church actually taught, like the letter of the law. What is the letter of the law? That means what the law exactly says. So the letter of, the, of Vatican II was what it taught, and the spirit of Vatican II was more the idea of the council. Now, they should match, right? Eh, they don't. Behind the spirit, there was an underlying dynamic of some in the church that was radical and dangerous. It is the idea of this ongoing, endless change detached from any tradition. This is wrong. Benedict said we need continuity, hermeneutic of continuity, meaning you embrace the past and help make the future better. So things like women priests or the approval of homosexuality were items put on this agenda. And John the 23rd said when he convened Vatican II that we want to open the windows of the church. But you know what Paul the sixth said in 1972, just 10 years later? He said the smoke of Satan has now entered the church. Ouch. 
He said the days after the council should be bright light. Instead, it has become full of clouds. So the problems after Vatican II, confusion, polarization, decline in the sacraments, loss of reverence. Why? Is Vatican II the cause of this? Or is Vatican II, the documents, part of the solution if we can just get it implemented? This is the, the question. I look to this. This is, to me, fascinating. I want to give you two examples that I think answer this question. The first, the Diocese of Krakow in Poland. Who was the head of that diocese after Vatican II? John Paul. In Krakow, John Paul implemented Vatican II perfectly. And you know why I think it happened perfectly? This is fascinating. Do you know in the entire diocese of Krakow, Poland, Krakow, Poland, the Polish people from all walks of life met for two years and they actually read the documents. Can you even imagine? The local townsfolks, they gathered together and they read the documents of Vatican II before implementing them. And then when they were implementing them, they became the best diocese in the world. Now, I use that argument to say, you really think then that Vatican II, the documents were drafted by Satan? When you look at what John Paul II did in Krakow, Poland, it was mainly because the people wanted it. They gathered together, the people read the documents, and they implemented it. Now take that as opposed to the Netherlands. At the very same time, the Netherlands jumped aboard the wild modernist gravy train, they thought. And they had these wild implementation ideas, and they devised them before they even translated the documents, let alone read them. And ever since then, Netherlands, disaster disaster of the faith because activists got in there and decided that we're going to form our own ideas here based on the spirit of Vatican II things that Vatican II never taught so is Vatican II a disaster yeah when you implement it that way but is it from the documents of Vatican II no because they don't say to do that and so the Netherlands had this wild implementation scheme that they devised before the translation of the documents, let alone even reading them. Now, here in the United States, I bet you none of you know this. And I learned this in seminary. You know where they think the church failed in the United States? One man. The key guy from the United States of America. Let's show his picture. This is Cardinal Albert Meyer of Chicago. He was the key guy. He understood it. He got it. He was who everybody was counting on to implement Vatican II in the United States, starting with Chicago. Things could have been totally different. He died. He died. Don't ask me why God would allow that, but maybe God was allowing that to say to the other Americans, were you listening? Because I had to, take, I had to bring your captain home. It's kind of like a football team when the captain goes down. Oh, they hang their heads. Uh, no, you're supposed to pick up and say, what have we been practicing for? When I was on the wrestling team in high school, and we lost our best wrestler. It's like we hung our heads. No. What have we been training for? 
But this is what happened in the United States. Cardinal Albert Meyer died before implementation. And it didn't seem we ever got back on track. Councils can be wrong in their implementation, not in their teaching. You know what one is a good example? Oh, Father, before Vatican II, there was never a wrong council. All right, look up Vatican uh, Lateran V. Do you know what happened at Lateran V? What was the fruit of Lateran V? What happened right after Lateran V? Anybody? The Reformation. Boy, that was a successful implementation, wasn't it? Right before the Reformation was Lateran V. Oh, but Father, before Vatican II, never had a problem. Well, that was a bigger problem than maybe ever. All right? So we will get Vatican II wrong if we think of it as church politics or power struggles or break in tradition. There is no doctrinal error in the actual documents of Vatican II, many say. John Paul II said, Benedict said, even Lefebvre said. He signed them. If, if Archbishop Lefebvre of St. Pius X, the Society of St. Pius X, said they were airing the documents, why did he sign them? I believe he had problems, justifiably so, with what happened afterwards, because he didn't break away till 1970, five years later. All right? Now, um, one of my good friends I went to seminary with, Ralph Martin, if you ever see any of his stuff, fabulous. Ralph Martin also says there's no doctrinal errors in the documents. No doctrinal errors in the documents. But there was weaknesses of pastoral strategy. Okay? Gaudiumet Spes. I'm going to get into good stuff here. Says serve, get this, serve the world and our brothers. Now that's not incorrect. That's not heresy. That's true. But that's only a small part. You got to serve God. Serving your brother is good. But that's only part of it. So just serving your brother is not salvific. If you serve just your brother, it's not salvific. It's needed for salvation, but by itself is not salvific. So it underestimates also another example, sin. Karimet Spez underestimates sin at a time when modern culture was releasing sin like never before. Pius XII said mankind is more sinful now than he was at the time of the flood. Unlike the previous 20 councils, Vatican II did not, did not articulate a key to how to interpret the council. They never issued a statement, this is what we mean. That would have helped. So everybody took it as their own interpretation. This is exactly why we need a church. It's kind of like scripture. You ever meet a non-Catholic? Oh, well, I interpret it this way. Ah, oh, well, yeah, that's your fault. I interpret it this way. No. You need an, an authority to tell you to interpret so you can live the one truth. Other councils, they didn't make this mistake. A council in the past, before Vatican II, this is when I will pick on Vatican II, it never defined how to interpret what they were saying. Other councils had written creeds, defined dogmas. They condemned heresy. Remember, Trent, let him be anathema. If he is an Ohio State fan, let him be anathema, right? <laughs> Just joking, sorry. They declared it. 
They legislated canons into church law. They commissioned catechism, even though we had a catechism come in 1992. It wasn't a direct result of Vatican II. It came from it in a way. But Vatican II did none of this. This was one reason why confusion over the council's intention and meaning happened. But does that make the council bad? All right, let's talk about this. One of my favorites, Fulton Sheen. All right, what did Fulton Sheen say? When we start to condemn or criticize, go to the great saints, all right? See what they said. All right, let's look at our next, um, next uh, uh, slide. This is Fulton Sheen. Can you believe that slide? He was on the front cover of TV Guide. <laughs> on the front cover of TV Guide. Right there on the cover, it says how we reach millions of people. What did Sheen say? A lot of people who like to reject the council always point to Sheen. Well, this is interesting because did you read his autobiography, Treasure in Clay? Sheen deemed the council's documents to be brilliant. Yeah, this isn't me talking. This is Fulton Sheen, especially Gaudi and Metzbez. Don't believe me? Page 247. I just read it. Chris Sparks pointed it out to me. He praised both pre-Vatican popes, like Pius XI and Pius XII, and post-Vatican II popes, such as John XXIII and even Paul VI. Let's read what he said. Okay, in addressing all this upheaval after Vatican II, because Sheen lived in 1979. So let's read what he said. Let's go to our next slide. The tension that developed after the council, meaning Vatican II, are not surprising to those who know the whole history of the church. Interesting, right? It is a historical fact that whenever there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as in a general council of the church, which is what Vatican II was, there is always an extra show of force by the anti-spirit or the demonic. Interesting. Even at the beginning, immediately after Pentecost and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, there began a persecution and the murder of St. Stephen. Anybody going to call that the fruit of Pentecost? Stephen was murdered because of it. If a general council did not provoke the spirit of turbulence, meaning Satan, one might almost doubt the operation of the third person of the Trinity over the assembly. Pages 292 to 293. Fascinating concept. Fascinating comment. He's saying if we didn't have this turmoil, we'd have to wonder if the Holy Spirit was really there. But when the Holy Spirit is there, we're going to have turmoil. So did Vatican II require the tabernacle to be removed and placed into a side, uh, a side area or a broom closet? No. In a document issued after Vatican II, you know where that all came from? You know where that whole thing, okay, let's pick, I want to go through the things that everybody likes to pick on the church today. As many, I, I can't get them all, but let's start with moving the tabernacle. We Marian fathers have it right here, front and center. In a document issued after Vatican II, not Vatican II, quote, the blessed sacrament should be reserved in a solid, inviolable tabernacle in the middle of the main altar or in a side altar, but in a truly prominent place. So there, not only did Vatican II say not to move it, 
a document after Vatican II said keep it in the middle of the altar, and it was talking about the high altar at the time because they hadn't switched to the front altar. Many church renovations, however, now let's go to how did this happen then, Father Chris? How did they get moved? All right, many renovations were undertaken under the, quote, authority. Check this out. I bet you've never heard this. Under the authority of a document titled Environment and Art in Catholic Worship. You want to know where all this mess came from? One document that does not have the authority of all the bishops because it was not approved by all the bishops. One document titled Environment and Art in Catholic Worship. This document promoted widely by liturgical experts was passed by a committee, just a committee of American bishops in 1977, but it was never brought before the entire body of bishops for a vote. Its backers didn't do that because they realized it would not pass. This document has no authority. But if your priest is moving all the stuff around based on that document, tell him that document does not have the authority to remove that tabernacle. All right, let's look at our next slide. Did Vatican II mention communion in the hand? Let's look at our next slide. I cringe at that picture because some hosts are more naturally... um, They disintegrate easier than others. We try to use those hosts that don't, but some hosts, I go to parishes, my gosh, when I break them, particles go everywhere. Vatican II never mentioned receiving communion in the hand. But when some countries introduced this practice illicitly, Paul VI surveyed the bishops to see if it should be kept in the places it already existed. The United States was one of them. You don't see it in many nations in Africa or Asia. Rather than suddenly suppressing reception of communion in the hand, the Pope granted an indult intended to let the practice continue for a time in those areas where it already existed. The problem is they've never gone back to readjust it or to reevaluate it. We're going to do a talk on this Uh, when I return from Rome in a couple weeks. Now, we got to keep in mind, to permit something is not the same as to require it or encourage it. Everybody will tell you Vatican II required communion in the hand, encouraged communion in the hand. No, it didn't. There's no mention of it in Vatican II in any of the documents. I've read them all. Trust me. But it was permitted after Vatican II. Some things that we think is being caused by Vatican II were never in the documents. Some things that were done by bishops, priests, or religious in violating of the teaching of the council still happen today. Liturgical abuse, that breaks the church's law. That isn't obeying an ecumenical council. I will never obey Vatican II. Well, you don't have to because Vatican II doesn't say that. All right, we can't permit that the church... Okay, here, this is critical, important. Listen to this one line. Chris Sparks got this for me, found it. We can't permit what the church forbids. Okay, the church forbids sexual relations outside of marriage, abortion, 
The church forbids that. We cannot permit what the church forbids. But at the same time, we can't forbid what the church permits. I don't like the fact that the church has not addressed communion in the hand, but I have to allow it. Because I cannot forbid what the church permits. We'll be talking about that again more. <clears throat> the church may change discipline. The church may not change faith and morals. How we receive is discipline. And yes, it should be reverent. It should be. Many traditionalists mistake disciplines like receiving in the hand for dogma, church teaching. They're not the same. Or they confuse long-standing practices like tradition as being a fundamental precept of the faith. It's not. Do you know that whether priests marry or not is a discipline? If, if the church changes that priests can marry, which I totally am against now, I was holding out for years to become a priest, hoping they would change and allow priests to marry. Ah, oh, yeah, perfect. Now I can do both. Uh-uh. I am so convinced now. A priest cannot be married. I do seven days a week, 18-hour days, and yeah, there's a hockey game scattered in there and stuff like that. But even then, I realized I could never be a good husband to a wife but I try to be the best spouse to the church. I'm totally against priests ever marrying, but the church has the power to change that. That's a part of discipline, not faith and morals. Now, women's ordination, that is an issue of faith and morals because the priest is in persona Christi, in the person of Christ who is a man. So this is all fascinating. Now, let's keep going. Okay, so the church may change discipline but not faith and morals. Many, as I said, many traditionalists confuse this. Many on the left, modernists, mistake morality for discipline. Discipline can change. Morality cannot. Sexual relations outside of marriage can never be allowed. They assume the church can endlessly change your sexual morality, for instance, just because any bishop says so or any crazy priest, which is sadly sometimes praised by people at the Vatican. <laughs> Be careful of that. They appeal to the spirit of Vatican II to justify changes and claim that Vatican II opened the doors to everyone themselves to determine what is good or bad for themselves. That's called cultural relativism, independent of church teaching. This is not true. Contrary to common misconception, abstinence from meat on Fridays. People say Vatican II did away with that. I remember I went to McDonald's. I was traveling and I tried to get a filet of fish, you know, on a Friday. That's like my meal for the day. I hate traveling because I don't like eating bad, but I sometimes do. And I had my collar on and I ordered a fish sandwich. And the woman working the drive-thru, she was a little bit older. She says, are you a Catholic priest? I said, yes. And she said, well, Father, why don't you have a, a good hamburger? You can eat meat now on Fridays. 
Actually, Vatican II never did away with meat on Fridays. Do you know that every Friday you are supposed to not eat meat? Did you know this? We only think of Fridays in Lent. Technically, we are not supposed to eat meat on Fridays. However, the church in her weakness was given another indult that you can eat meat on Fridays outside of Lent if you do another form of penance. So what that woman should have done, but God bless her, she should have said, Father, I see you must not have done another form of penance because you are eating fish on Friday. <laughs> and so this, this is misconception. All right. It's never been abolished from Roman law. And it was not abolished by Vatican II. It is not abolished by post-Vatican II popes. It remains a universal law of the Latin church. All right. Let's look at our next slide. What about this one? This is a big one. Vatican II never said to turn the altars around. Ad orientum. What does that mean? Facing the east, like you see in your picture. That would be like if you're in the congregation, I would be celebrating mass at the front altar. And I do want to do that. I do want to learn the extraordinary form. The church at the Vatican II did not demand this. People say it did. It's nowhere in the documents. Again, I've read every one. It's nowhere. Now, it doesn't mean it's against the church's discipline to do allow a freestanding altar as well. The church has that ability to change its discipline. You will hear people say Vatican II switched the altars. Therefore, it's not valid. That's untrue. Latin. Vatican II removed that from the mass, right? No, it actually says in the documents it's encouraged. We're going to go into more of that later. It says Gregorian chant, which is in Latin, Latin singing, has a pride of place. What about music? Oh, it kills me when I go to these parishes and they're banging on drums and, and playing guitars, electric guitars even. The actual Vatican II says that the only musical instruments allowed in the Mass, you know what it says? Does it say drums are allowed and, and electric guitars? Does Vatican II documents say that? No. You know what it says is the only organ that, or I just give the answer. <laughs> the only instrument that's allowed? An organ. An organ. Let's go to our next slide. So what happened at Vatican II? It was a pastoral crisis. Vatican II didn't eliminate these things that I just brought up. We'll talk about more. Because Vatican II was a response to a pastoral crisis, not a dogmatic one. So a great deal of the council's attention was devoted to the inner life of the church in an effort to revitalize Christians in being holy and reconnecting them with the source of their faith, scripture, and the church fathers. This is called resourcement. That's what we showed up earlier. This was namely the liturgy, the Bible, and the church fathers. Vatican II did not crush those things. It tried to link to them. Whether or not that happened is arguable. In order to make these sources more accessible, meaning the sources of the Bible, the Mass, and the Church Fathers, the bishops desired to update the language, going to the vernacular, the images, the customs, the ceremonies, without diluting doctrine. Now, I'm going to preface this. That was their intent. Did that happen perfectly? No. I saw, I couldn't even put it, 
I was going to show it as our video today, but I just couldn't. There was a story that after Vatican II, the church kids at a Catholic school were given hammers and for their fun time to go out and smash the statues, the sacred statues that were removed from the Catholic church. This was in the UK. I'm telling you, something's going to happen in the UK. Something's going on. They're getting ready to consecrate the bishops there, to consecrate the whole nation to Mary. I'm going to Dublin. If you are listening and you're anywhere near Dublin on February the 18th, I'll be speaking at the largest Divine Mercy Conference in all of Europe on February, actually February 19th, coming up in under a month. Those are not what Vatican II called for, but that was the result. Finally, there was a need for clergy and laity to better understand their roles. Now, here's the thing. In order to do that, they wanted more participation of the laity, right or wrong. Now, I said before, I love the extraordinary form. I want to learn it. I'm going to learn it. But we can't reject the ordinary form. And the same with the people who come to the Norvis Ordo. They cannot reject the extraordinary form. Now, the fact is, if these, I, I, and to me, this is the only common ground we have of people who argue amongst Catholics. If there is anything that Catholics can agree on, and it may not even be true, is that Vatican II changed the Mass. And we talked about this last week. The last two weeks, I've done a, a, a talk on the Latin Mass. Yeah, I, I ask you to watch that. But we now have filtered into two extremes and a moderate position in the middle. What do I mean? On one extreme, the left, is this position of the love of an informal Mass, joking around, playing rock music, beating on drums, facing the people, does not at all correspond with what the council had in mind, even though that's what's happened due to misimplementation. Although it is legitimate, it is illicit. Although it is valid, it is not licit. It is permitted, but it is wrong. Now, on the other extreme, we have returned with permission to the Mass of 1962, which is good. I love it. And others have noted it is thriving and growing, mainly because of the abuses of the Novus Ordo. But it is also not entirely what the Council had in mind either, because we needed revisions for things like more participation in the laity, them understanding the words, so the mass in the vernacular. Not saying I agree, but those were the changes that came after Vatican II, even though Vatican II didn't say to change the Latin. This is where it just gets all confusing. Then somewhere in the middle, you have people like me who want reverence, who want sacredness, who know the beauty of the Holy Spirit in both forms. Few know, do you know this? That the Novus Ordo Mass 
restored some long-forgotten traditions from the Mass? Let me give you a few. The Norris Ordo brought this back, which were long-standing traditions that it brought back, a requirement of a homily on Sundays and on feast days. The Novus Ordo brought that back. The reinstitution of the prayers of the faithful. Don't you think it's good that we pray for the church and the world and our loved ones in the Mass? That was brought back in the Novus Ordo. That had been gone. Expanding the lectionary now to include a wider range of readings from the Bible. Instead of just having one cycle, we have A, B, and C. We have three times the readings. The reform of the liturgical calendar. This one's tricky because a lot of people will blame Vatican II for removing all the great saints. I remember when I found out St. Christopher was removed. <laughs> I was furious. How could the church do that? Well, the focus was to be more on the feast of the Lord because it was, there were so many. So I'm, I, I, I'm torn on that one. The option to receive Holy Communion under both species, not just the flesh, but also the blood. This is a tradition from way back that had been lost and was brought back into the Novus Ordo Mass. Did you know that? Hmm. Some even point out the prayers of the Mass in the sacramentary are more ancient than the Trinitine Mass. I've yet to confirm that, but I've been told that multiple times. Most mention the disappearance of Latin and the priest facing the people. That's the two biggest complaints. But they really don't know anything else. That's why, Father, I reject the Novus Ordo Mass. It took out the Latin and the priest faces the people. But they usually don't mention much more. And Vatican II did not say to do either of those two. Interestingly, neither the removal of Latin or the turning of the altar was mandated by an actual text of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Sacrosanctum Concilium. Nope. Vatican II wanted to restore a greater communal meaning and experience to all, uh, an experience of all liturgical celebrations that encouraged active, this is the most critical line of all of Vatican II, active conscious participation of the laity. That's what's been abused. The intent was to get people involved so they could hear in their language, they could understand the words, but Participation, as I said last week, doesn't have to mean you're in the sanctuary. Participation can mean you're in the pew, in silence. That's why I like the extraordinary form. The altar rail separates heaven from earth. The sanctuary is heaven. The priest should be the one up there, and the deacon and the altar servers. The altar rail separated that from the earth. But you come up to it, you approach it on this earth to prepare for your crossover into heaven after you die. And Holy Communion is the food for that journey. So the celebrations were to do this. The word liturgy, do you know what the word liturgy means in the Greek? Anybody? Liturgia, it means the work of the people. 
When you look at it that way, I can halfway understand the meaning of Vatican II. Was it implemented correctly? No. Were there abuses? Absolutely. Did they define things and give their intent? No, they should have. This active participation was the principal aim of the Council's revisions. Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 34. But the actual revision of liturgical books that happened afterwards was a task that was way beyond what the Council could achieve in four years. They didn't do it a post-conciliar commission known as the Concilium. That is who did it, and that's where Bugnini, and I explained to you last week, if you can watch that talk, that's where the errors got in. All right. He was appointed to carry out these revisions, and the rumor has it that Bugnini would go to Pope John Paul, or Paul VI and say, the Concilium wants all these things, and Paul VI is like, What? That doesn't seem right. And Bugnini would say, yeah, that's what the council, the concilium wants. And Paul VI would say, well, okay. And then Bugnini would go back to the concilium and say all these crazy things. And they'd be like, no way. And he'd say, well, that's what Paul VI wants. Now, I'm kind of baffled from the lack of communication. But if you've ever dealt with the church, you can know it's not that far from possibility, from being possible. All right. So what are the things that worked? Okay. There's a controversy about the translation of the text and the way the changes were implemented. We know this. So one of the issues was the revised lectionary. Talks about this in um, Sacrosanctum Concilium 30, paragraph 35. Prior to the council, there was very little. Did you know this? I bet you didn't. Prior to Vatican II, there was very little Old Testament read in the Mass of the Roman Rite. Very little. In the new lectionary, we got it right. We have the Old Testament reading every Sunday and during the weekdays, which is carefully coordinated with the gospel. For instance, what do I mean by this? Well, in that gospel passage where Jesus said the Son of Man will be lifted up in sacrifice, the first reading of that day from the Old Testament is Moses carving the brown seraph and lifting him up in the desert. And when people looked upon him, they were healed. Just like Jesus said, the Son of Man will be lifted up. It, it connects it in a beautiful way. That didn't happen before Vatican II. Am I sitting here blowing the Vatican II horn and saying I'm all pro-Vatican II? No way. The intent, though, seems to me, to me, a little different than the abuses that came from it. Again, I think it was of God, but any good thing, Satan twists, even of God. Look at sexuality. We are all sexual beings. God gave the gift of sexuality as a good thing. But is there anything more twisted and abused? Human trafficking? Sexual abuse? Sodomy? Promiscuity? Contraception? This is nuts. It's given of God, but totally misused, abused. And so... What we have here in the, in the new lectionary is a coordinated gospel in such a way that the Old Testament, they illuminate each other. These readings together with the psalm and the epistle on a Sunday. So the first reading is from the Old Testament. Then we have the responsorial psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. That comes from the psalms. Then we have the epistle. The epistle, I remember once in catechism, I had my little seventh grade class and I asked, 
I had a little joker in there, and he was one of the cool kids. And I asked him, what is, what is an epistle? And he said, an epistle is a baby apostle. <laughs> no, an epistle is the letters that like Paul wrote, or Peter. All right. These readings, together with the Psalm and the Epistle, are arranged in a three-year cycle now, not a one-year. So we can hear the highlights of more of the Bible over three years than just one. A similar cycle goes for daily readings. In the old form, we have one cycle. In the new, we have two. Year one and year two. These are things that people that attack the Novus Ordo Mass never tell you. I'm not saying the Novus Ordo is perfect. I'm saying it's full of faults, but let's be, let's be fair here. I'm going to criticize the abuses, but I'm also going to give credit where credit's due, and I know I'm going to get a million letters on this, calling me a modernist and everything else, but you're not being open-minded if you don't listen to these things. A few other, here's the thing. Um, good achievements, for instance, making the prayers audible. In the low mass, many of the prayers were inaudible. The priest said to himself, you had no idea what was going on even if you did understand Latin. And if you were following in your missile, you didn't know at what point he was saying them. You know why we have the bells at consecration? The bells at consecration came from the tradition in the Latin mass because the priest was facing away and you didn't even know the moment of consecration sometimes. So they would ring the bells so you at least knew when the consecration was. That's good. I love bells. So the things, though, that we didn't get right. This list is much longer. Things left to do. The principle of the revision of the Roman rite was supposed to be, quote, from Sacrosanctum 20, uh, 34, noble simplicity. <laughs> but many seem to have interpreted this to mean casual simplicity. Noble simplicity means all the reverence is maintained. But that's not what happened. The council did not encourage a lack of reverence. Even with the kiss of peace, when people start giving high fives and dancing in the aisles, or even communion in the hand, which they did not dictate, but they allowed, those can be accused, uh, uh, occasions of abuse. But the church did not write irreverence into the rubrics. Does that make sense? All right. Now, the council did not encourage a lack of reverence or a lessening of a sense of awe, at least in the documents. All right. In the writings, its intention was to make the liturgy more accessible and understandable. That's all. Yet it is hard not to notice this uh, attitude, this ho-hum attitude on part of not just the laity, but the clergy. Their posture of the clergy, the dress of the laity. Do you know what Mother Angelica's down at the EW10, they make you put on sweatshirts and sweatpants before going into the mass? Because half the people are half undressed. This is crazy. The laziness, I like when people come up for Holy Communion, they're going like this. I, I, I'm just like flabbergasted. That's partly the church fault for not catechizing what the Eucharist means. 
We've lost our teaching. Half of that is because we've lost our nuns. And half of that, we lost our nuns, is because they say Vatican II said, drop the habit, and many nuns didn't want to give up their life and religious life to wear a business suit and a short skirt and high heels. I can do that and still date in the real world. If a sister's going to give up her life, she doesn't want to live a lie. But that's not what Vatican II said to do. So the criterion that was to be the highest of all in carrying out liturgical reform was the full, conscious, and active participation of the laity. That's Sancrosoctum 14. The problem is that phrase, active participation, which occurs 15 times and could said to be the whole key, although it's well-meaning, I believe this is the problem. People think active participation means you got to be up at the altar, that you got to be in the sanctuary. No, that's not what it means. We see much more outward participation now than we did before the council. We have lay lectors, ushers, extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist, offertory processions, musicians. But I'm not sure it's all good. This more extensive outward participation was supposed to encourage more inward involvement, spiritual engagement with God. But unfortunately, I think it's had the opposite effect. We use it as a time to socialize. The bad culture took over. Active participation should be quiet. Worship and awe. Active participation doesn't mean you have to be up here dancing. Like that video we showed last week. Ay, ay, ay. Reverence. These should be the place for Latin and certainly for Gregorian chant. This is what the, 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 the document said. The council mandated changes in the sacramentals and the liturgy, even like the liturgy of the hours, which we pray outside of mass. So it could be fruitful. The people could enjoy it and regularly be used as part of their way to sanctify their everyday life. But things got watered down. Do you know the blessings? You'll hear a lot of priests say, if you're going to do an exorcism, use the old rite. I don't disagree with that. I actually agree with that. Because if you read the old rite, there's a command, a command of evil. And you bless like if I'm blessing the Advent wreath, the old rite blesses the Advent wreath. If you read the new rite, the blessing doesn't even bless the Advent wreath. It blesses all the people around it. You can't forget to bless the Advent wreath. So I actually agree. The old rite there is good, it's better. The ultimate goal of the council's liturgical reform is the inner life-changing participation of the faithful in every aspect of liturgical life. But this is still far away. We're far off in the horizon. There needs to be a spiritual appropriation of the liturgical teaching of the council. This is one thing. It is one thing to rewrite the texts, but it's quite another to transform hearts. The texts were written good. Hearts were, though, not transformed. I put a lot of the blame in the culture of the time. A, a heart, a soil that's not properly prepared, the seed's going to die. So even if Vatican II did supply a beautiful seed, if all the hearts were full of garbage and 
the changing cultural times and embracing things like sodomy and contraception and abortion, that seed's not going to plant. Hearts won't be changed. Let's look at our next slide. Something very important that came out of Vatican II is called communio. All right, so this is a, a very important term. Vatican II wished to return to the more biblical and church father vision of the church as a communion of persons, right? Flowing from the three divine persons of the Trinity. Who are the Trinity? A community of persons. So last couple of pages, everybody, we're almost done. We're getting there. So this was supported by John Paul II and Ratzinger by Wojtyla and Ratzinger, they both supported it. Yet, regrettably, the way the structures of the church function, we see no communion now. The bishop, who's supposed to be a father, whose role is to teach, pastor, and sanctify the faithful and his priests, you can't even get to him. He's protected by so many layers of administration, you can't get to him. Many bishops function more as admins than as fathers. You know what the scandal showed us? I think this is one of the reasons God allowed the scandal. You know what the scandal showed us when they interviewed the bishops? <laughs> Unbelievable. The bishops had no idea who their own priests were. You're going to expect a priest to live a life of celibacy, and he needs to. But you're going to expect him to have no father? Now, I know it's hard on a bishop. And now we've just heaped tons of more administration on him since the scandal. We don't realize we're going to make it actually worse. Now the bishops are buried in so much paperwork that what was the cause of it to begin with not being present to their priests, not even knowing who their priests are, is now getting worse. We don't see it. And especially when we bring in all these other groups that are not even Catholic to run our churches. Mm -mm. Priest training, selection, and assignments have been delegated by the bishops to other people, to committees. If the church is first and foremost a communion of persons, communio, a family, then personal care and communication cannot be delegated, at least entirely. If a bishop or pastor becomes inaccessible, we are dealing with a bureaucracy, not a communio. I think you know what I'm talking about. So the objective, we need to be a family. And part of that is bringing people into your family. That's called ecumenism, the dirty word of Vatican II. Vatican II's decrees on ecumenism show that we need to evangelize, but without sacrificing the truth. All are encouraged in praying and working for the restoration of Christian unity. We all are. Despite this flurry of ecumenical activity immediately after the council, do you know today there's almost zero? There's almost no ecumenism going on in the church right now. Zero. Because we're afraid to be called proselytizing. That we're forcing our faith on the other. My own parents, when I came home, my own parents told me, now when our cousins come over, don't you be talking about religion. You don't force your religion on other people. Really? I'm not going to sit there and, and interrogate them, but I'm not going to stop praying grace 
before the meal. Right? Petitions for Christian unity don't really appear in the prayers of the faithful anymore. That we will bring in the, the Jews and the Muslims. Probably the most fruitful ecumenical collaboration in the United States has been what? What's been our best tool of ecumenism? The pro-life movement. Actually, Protestants and Catholics have been working side by side on that. You know another way? Protestant cooperation with Catholics? Actually, Mel Gibson told me when I interviewed him for our EWTN show, Mel Gibson said that the Passion of the Christ would never have been made in Hollywood if it weren't for the uniting of all Christians, Protestants as well as Catholics. That is ecumenism. Now, let's go to our next slide. We're getting close. Hang in there, everybody. We dropped the ball. So now what? Vatican II proclaimed evangelization as a top priority. But it's been anything but. We've dropped the ball. Yet 60 years after the council, in a nation that is 25% Catholic, there are major areas that have no, not even a single Catholic radio station. EWTN has been good, but many bishops fight them. Many priests and laity have no idea where to start to bring somebody back to the church. The task is not changing texts like Vatican II or structures, but changing people. Humans are creatures of habit. Habits are tough to change. And so we should not be surprised that after 60 years after Vatican II, the council's vision still remains unimplemented. Pray, pray for the intercession of the saints like John Paul, who wanted to implement it. John Paul II assumed, you know where he got his name? You know why John Paul picked his name John Paul? Do you know this? John and Paul. After John the 23rd and Paul the 6th. Some say, well, he named it after Paul the 1st, John Paul the 1st. That's true too. But then where did John Paul the 1st get it? It was picked because of John the 23rd and Paul the 6th, the two, bish the two popes of Vatican II. In order to demonstrate that he was dedicated to implementing it. Now, will the real, this is a great article. I got to show this. He's a friend of our religious community, Father Peter Stravinskis. And um, he wrote a great article called, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? I got to share this with you because it's phenomenal. All right. He said, both the far right and the far left often think that Vatican II created a brand new church. The far left maintains happily that the council or the spirit of the council brought down the hierarchy of the church having left in its wake a new liturgy and elimination of sacred worship. To the far right, he said, they agree unhappily that there is a new church, pointing to the destruction of it and the discipline inciting liturgical horror stories. So he said there's only one way we can know the truth. You got to go to the documents. I'm going to briefly, I can't, I'm going to skip this. I can't do all 16. I was going to, I can't. I only got a few minutes left. Let's pick out some of the main ones. Let's go to our next slide. Sancrosanctum Concilium, which I talked about. That means the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. One of the first myths of Vatican II was that it taught Christ is present everywhere as much as in the Eucharist. That's pantheism. All right. The Council Fathers really said, quote, 
He is present especially under the Eucharistic species. That's paragraph seven. So we are led to believe that the council did away. What about this one? Devotions. Don't you hear this? Vatican II did away with prayers to Mary and statues. They smashed statues. No, not fully. Listen to this. Paragraph 13. Popular devotions of the Christian people are to be highly commended. I don't know where this lie comes from. Just because people stop doing devotions doesn't mean Vatican II taught it. Provided that they are in accord with the laws and the norms of the church. Bingo. Let's look at our next slide. What about the complaints that priests add things to the liturgy? I don't like that at all. I don't add things to the words of the, of the missal. Well, let's read this. No other person, quote, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. How about that? Finally, there must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. And care must be taken that any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. Unbelievable. The church is telling you right there in Vatican II, the priest is not supposed to add things. I got, as I always use my favorite term, a scathing letter. Because last week, my talk, they said, Father, how dare you not condemn Vatican II? Priests are changing the words. Yeah, that's a problem. But did you just read what the Vatican II document says? They are not to do that. So we got to talk to our bishops. Why are you letting the priests do that? If I hear as provincial superior, one of our priests changing the words of consecration, adding to it or taking away, he's not going to be celebrating another public mass. Unless he says, oh, gosh, Father, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. No problem. No problem. The change of the extraordinary form to the ordinary form was not mandated. People don't realize this. The Vatican II documents never mandated a change from the extraordinary form to the ordinary form. Can you believe that? The Novus Ordo Missal of Paul VI was done in response to Vatican II's call for renewal, but the council was already over. The council didn't change and make the ordinary form. It happened after the council was over. Now, people, of course, will say, but it affected it. Okay, yeah, but maybe in a wrong way, maybe misled. If Vatican II did away with the Latin mass, nobody told the bishops. Listen to this quote. Quote, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. Paragraph 36. Can't blame Vatican II for that was all done after. What about music? We talked about that a second ago. Listen to this. Paragraph 116. The church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. That's fascinating. And I said before, paragraph 120, the organ is supposed to be the only instrument. There was no directive in Sancrosanctum Concilium or in the germ. What is the germ? G-I-R-M. The general instruction 
of the Roman Missal to turn the altar around, as I said, from Ad Orientum. The instructions for the priest celebrating the Mass, listen to this, if you read the germ, the instructions for the priest in the Vatican II documents actually tell him when he needs to face the people versus Popolo, to face the people, telling him to turn around and to face them at certain points. That means the, the, the germ and the written documents assume the priest is still facing forward. The council also said nothing about the moving of the tabernacle, as I mentioned earlier. It said nothing about removing altar rails. It said nothing about taking out kneelers. It said nothing about adding multiple canons, even though those canons are traditional and ancient. All right, let's go through the, another couple of documents real quick. Lumen Gentium, let's go to our next slide. Lumen Gentium, that's the dogmatic constitution of the church. Some Catholics say, I don't follow a man-made church. Yet Vatican II, they think, did away with all hierarchy. Lumen Gentium corrects that. Paragraph 8, I'm summarizing the best of the documents for you. The Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. It's not saying all other religions are fine. That's a confusion of, of Lumen Gentium 14, 15, and 16. It says others can be saved, but it is only through Christ, and Christ's body is the Catholic Church. The Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Let's look at our next slide. This is a fascinating quote. This sacred council teaches that the church is necessary for salvation. Oh, well, Father Vatican II doesn't teach that anymore. Really? Have you read the documents? I think that needs to be our answer. Every time somebody says Vatican II destroyed the church or doesn't teach anymore, say, can you show me that in the documents? Christ present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. Whoever, listen to this, you don't think Vatican II, you think it's wishy-washy, and it says you can do whatever you want, and you can be whatever religion you want, which is what I was told growing up Vatican II did. Listen to this. Whoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter it, or to remain in it cannot be saved. Whoa. I got a lot of family in that category. I pray it's because they don't know the Catholic Church is the one true church. Because this document just says if somebody knows that the Catholic Church is the true church of Christ and refuses to enter it or remain in it, they cannot be saved. There's a whole heck of a lot of ex-Catholics. And Vatican II teaches that the biggest people in trouble are ex-Catholics. We have to pray for them. Don't be scared because we pray that maybe they don't know. But then I always say, well, my nephew doesn't know. But then I always go back... Who is responsible for teaching my nephew? His uncle, a priest. Mm. That's Lumen Gentium 14. In recent years, the ordained priesthood has suffered major identity crisis. Many people claim that there's no difference now between priests and the lay people. The council fathers declared that while the common priesthood, quote, 
the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial of the priesthood. So I'm a ministerial priest. You are the common priest. They are interrelated, but they differ from one another in essence, not only in degree. That's paragraph 10. John Paul II, listen to this, decried the clericalization of the laity and the laization of the clergy. In other words, here's what he said. I love this line. Priests should not run for public office. They're not the laity, and the laity should not administer the sacraments. That's for the clergy. Now, sometimes we have to. I've been to masses where I've had over 800 people, and I'm the only priest. I cannot possibly distribute Holy Communion to everybody. So we need that, but they don't need to be as the priest is sitting there, and you got 12 lay people giving out Holy Communion. All right, let's talk about another one. Let's put up on the screen now. This is the decree on ecumenism. Many encourage us to just be nice. Don't be divisive. No, the council urged Catholics to present Catholic doctrine so that it is comprehensible to non-Catholics, but stressed, quote, it is, of course, essential that the doctrine should be clearly presented in its entirety. Don't do that. Don't leave out parts of the truth like your confession. Don't go to confession and just conveniently leave out some of the sins you're embarrassed by. It's the same when you're working with loved ones or family or friends. You don't keep them. Well, you know, I think, Johnny, that Valerie is a really beautiful girl. Well, mom, we're going to move in together. Okay. Now you're being nice. You're not being divisive. But you're really failing in leading them to the truth. Let's look at our next slide. This is a quote. Nothing is so foreign to the spirit of ecumenism as false irenicism. Irenicism. The, the ideology of putting and promoting peace or reconciliation above all else, including the truth. Uh-uh. In which the purity of Catholic doctrine suffers loss and its genuine and certain meaning is clouded. That's from paragraph 11. All right, let's jump on to the next one. Next slide. This is the decree on the renewal of religious life. This is a good one. It is clear that religious life has been in a meltdown. The, about the only community that I know that is exploding with vocations on the women's side are the Dominicans from Nashville and Ann Arbor, and on the men's side, the Marian fathers. God is sending us so many good young men. If you don't think divine mercy is important, we wouldn't be getting these vocations. There's other communities that haven't had vocations in 20 years. There's other good ones, too. The Eastern Dominicans, they have good vocations. Um, Fathers of Mercy and others are good ones. Abandoning these traditional apostates, moving out of religious houses, denying the authority of the superiors, throwing off your habits, wearing high heels and short skirts, wearing business suits, this is all contributed to the downfall of religious life, but not a single one of these is mentioned in Vatican II. Not one is mentioned in this decree on the renewal of religious life. In fact, the document contains the contrary. Listen to this, paragraph 17. I bet you didn't know this. The religious habit, drop it. No, 
just joking. The religious habit, an outward mark of consecration to God, should be simple and modest, poor, and at the same time, becoming. But you didn't hear that. All right. Next slide real quick. This is the decree on the training of priests. This is one of the other 16 documents. I'm just going to go through a couple. Finally, I'm on the last part. Ah, Priests are not trained and shown deeply how to live a celibate life of chastity. That's the hardest thing for some. The bishop said, quote, students, meaning seminarians, are to be educated to this state with great care. They, seminarians, are to be warned of the dangers that threaten their chastity, especially in present-day society. I went to one seminary. You know, I went to two seminaries. One seminary, beautiful. Focused on the four, four pillars of formation, the human formation, Father Mosey and Holy Apostles. Beautiful. Man, did he lay out for us what it requires to be chaste, what it requires to be celibate, what the meaning of the sacrifice is. Beautiful. The other seminary I went to, never said a word. Never said a word. How's a priest supposed to live that life? This is what it says. The seminarians are to be warned of the dangers that threaten their chastity, especially in present-day society. This is the document, paragraph 10. When seminaries eliminated the rules in the 70s from mandatory daily mass, which they eliminated, the divine office, to bans on dating, can you believe that? They did so in opposition to Vatican II directives in this document that said you don't do that. Let's go on quick. The next slide. If a priest has never studied Latin, what happened to this directive? Let's have Brother Mark show it. Moreover, this is right a quote, they, future priests, are to acquire a knowledge of Latin. Well, wait a minute, Father. Vatican II says stop all Latin. They don't teach it in the seminaries. I took Latin in the seminary. They are to acquire a, a knowledge of Latin, which will enable them to understand and make use of the sources of so many sciences and the documents of the church, because the church documents are in Latin. All right, I'm getting really close now. All right. The next one, De Verbum, another dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, how God talks to us, the Bible, tradition. So let's look at that. That's Dave Verbum. Let's go to the next quote. This document talked about the support or the need for tradition. Here's what it quoted. It is clear. This is a quote from Vatican II. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, that is the bishops in union with the pope, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. That's from De Verbum, paragraph 10. But many people will tell you Vatican II does not teach that. That it gave up tradition. It ended tradition. Not true. Again, have we dropped it? Yes. But did Vatican II teach that? No. All right. Uh, in paragraph 9, the council reaffirms the literal truth of Scripture. You know, it's funny because Vatican II blows away. I had somebody come up to me and say, you know what Vatican II taught? 
that theory that suggests that Jesus didn't really multiply the loaves and the fishes. He simply encouraged them to share. Do you know that is not taught in Vatican II? Vatican II teaches the opposite, that Jesus really did exist. He was a historical person, and the Bible's literally true. All right? That's it. I'm not going to go through any more documents. You get the gist of it. I needed to finish here. I, I, I will say a couple of the, the leaving comments, though, about this, because it is, to me, diabolical that the teachings of this council should be so misunderstood, misimplemented. It is possible, as I said before, that Vatican II is of God, but of all, like a lot of things is twisted and misused, just like Satan does. So, listen to this. I had to get this. This comes from Peter Savinskis, Father Peter. I, of all the lines I've ever read on Vatican II, this is the craziest. Of all the commentaries, the videos I've watched, the documents I've read, this is the craziest. He said, quote, If you prefer a more extensive use of Latin in the sacred liturgy, if you are upset by liturgical experiences, experiments, or practices such as the lay distribution of Holy Communion in the hand, if you hold that God wants every human being to be Catholic, if you can't understand why religious wear lay attire, the treasure, and if you treasure the charism of priestly celibacy, if you think our seminaries have been derailed, if you find it difficult to comprehend that the lack of support for Catholic schools exists, if you accept the teaching authority of the church, if you accept the gospel, accept the gospel portraits of Jesus as real and historical, if you prefer to see laity representing Christ in the world rather than in the sanctuary, if you believe it is your, responsible to your responsibility to evangelize the world for Christ, guess what? You support Vatican II. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because almost all those things I just read seem to be what's wrong with Vatican II. Technically, what Father Peter Stravinskis just wrote there, which I think is masterful, is technically the teaching. I can't stress it enough. Am I going to sit there and tell you that all these things are being done and they're all done the right way? Far from it. They are not. It is clear, it is clear, in 1907, the Pope condemned modernism. And modernism, it retreated, but it didn't disappear. It went underground. Modernism and liberalism that attacked the church went underground, but it returned with a vengeance right after Vatican II. This is what he says. While not all proponents of the spirit of Vatican II are themselves neo-modernists, I'm not. The spirit is the banner which neo-modernism 
has made inroads into the church. The spirit of Vatican II was introduced into America by a guy named Xavier, and I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, R-Y-N-N-E, Rin, Rhine, Rene. In a series of insider reports in the New Yorker magazine, he depicted the council as a struggle between good guy liberals and bad guy conservatives. Ryan said that Vatican II had not accomplished anything radical in what the documents said, and I think I just proved that. There's nothing radical in the documents. But for all of you who've turned my video off up to this point, saying, Father Chris, you're nothing but pro-Vatican II, listen to this. If I was, I wouldn't be reading this. He said, Vatican II accomplished nothing radical in what the documents said. But not to worry. Quote, more important than the documents, the council has consecrated a new spirit destined in the course of time to change the face of Catholicism. That's the danger. Don't condemn the council. Condemn what's happened after in the abuse. Benedict left no doubt that the intent of the council was good. He left no doubt that the hermeneutic of reform is the correct way to view the council. But as time passes, it becomes ever more apparent that it was the hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture that is the approach of some who want to hurt the church. So, love un- unconstrained by rules, that is to say any moral principles or norms which some want to wipe out, can be used to rationalize just about anything. That's what we see today. Thank you for joining us. Sorry we went long, but there's probably no more important topic in the church today than trying to understand this. Not rejecting the grace God wants to give us through the mass, but to also protect her from abuse. You have every right to correct these abuses, but you don't have a right to say Vatican Vatican II taught it. Now you could have a right to say it was misimplemented or that it was falsely understood And for that, the church needs to redefine and clean up. But until then, we trust in God. Amen? Hallelujah. You just sat through the longest talk I've ever given on a Saturday. God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise be to God. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. 
simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.